Book Two, Chapter Two, Sections One to Three of Mister Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Second, Taking Part. One. There were now two chief things in the mind of Mister Britling. One was a large and valiant thing a thing of heroic and processional quality. The idea of taking up one's share in the great conflict, of leaving the dower house and its circle of habits and activities, and going out. From that point he wasn't quite sure where he was to go, nor exactly what he meant to do. His imagination inclined to the figure of a volunteer in an improvised uniform inflicting great damage upon a raiding invader from behind a hedge. The uniform, one presumes, would have been something in the vein of the costume in which he met Mr. Durick, with a brassard, or he thought of himself as working at a telephone or in an office, engaged upon any useful quasi-administrative work that called for intelligence rather than training still, of course, with a brassard. A month ago he would have had doubts about the meaning of brassard. Now it seemed to be the very keyword for national organization. He had started for London by the early train on Monday morning, with the intention of immediate enrollment in any such service that offered, of getting, in fact, into his brassard at once. The morning papers he bought at the station dashed his conviction of the inevitable fall of Paris into hopeful doubts, but did not shake his resolution. The effect of rout and pursuit and retreat and retreat and retreat had disappeared from the news. The German right was being counter-attacked, and seemed in danger of getting pinched between Paris and Verdun, with the British on its flank. This relieved his mind but it did nothing to modify his new realization of the tremendous gravity of the war. Even if the enemy were held and repulsed a little, there was still work for every man in the task of forcing them back upon their own country. This war was an immense thing. It would touch everybody. That meant that every man must give himself. That he had to give himself. He must let nothing stand between him and that clear understanding. It was utterly shameful now to hold back and not to do one's utmost for civilization, for England, for all the ease and safety one had been given, against these drilled, commanded, obsessed millions. Mr. Britling was a flame of exalted voluntarism, of patriotic devotion that day. But behind all this bravery was the other thing, the second thing in the mind of Mr. Britling, a fear. He was prepared now to spread himself like some valiant turkey-gobbler, every feather at its utmost, against the aggressor. He was prepared to go out and flourish bayonets, march and dig to the limit of his power, shoot, die in a ditch if needful, rather than permit German militarism to dominate the world. He had no fear for himself. He was prepared to perish upon the battlefield, or cut a valiant figure in the military hospital. But what he perceived very clearly, and did his utmost not to perceive, was this qualifying and discouraging fact. 
that the war monster was not nearly so disposed to meet him as he was to meet the war, and that his eyes were fixed on something beside and behind him, that it was already only too evidently stretching out a long and shadowy arm past him towards Teddy and towards Hugh. The young are the food of war. Teddy wasn't Mr. Britling's business anyhow. Teddy must do as he thought proper. Mr. Britling would not even advise upon that. And as for Hugh... Mr. Britling did his best to brazen it out. "'My eldest boy is barely seventeen, he said. "'He's keen to go, and I'd be sorry if he wasn't. "'He'll get into some cadet corps, of course. "'He's already done something of that kind at school.' or they'll take him into the territorials. But before he's nineteen, everything will be over, one way or another. I'm afraid, poor chap, he'll feel sold. And having thrust Hugh safely into the background of his mind as juvenile, doing a juvenile share, no sort of man yet, Mr. Britling could give a free rein to his generous imaginations of a national uprising. From the idea of a universal participation in the struggle, he passed by an easy transition to an anticipation of all Britain armed and gravely embattled, across gulfs of obstinate reality. He himself was prepared to say, and accordingly he felt that the great mass of the British must be prepared to say to the government, Here we are at your disposal. This is not a diplomatist's war, nor a war office war. This is a war of the whole people. We are willing and ready to lay aside our usual occupations and offer our property and ourselves. Whim and individual action are for peace times. Take us and use us as you think fit. Take all we possess. When he thought of the government in this way, he forgot the governing class he knew. The slack-trousered Rayburn, the prim, attentive Filbert, Lady Frensham at the top of her voice, stern preposterous Carson, boozy Bandershoot and artful Taper, wily Asquith, the eloquent yet unsubstantial George, and the immobile Gray, vanished out of his mind. All those representative exponents of the way things are done in Great Britain faded in the glow of his imaginative effort. He forgot the dreary debates, the floundering newspapers, the bluffs, the intrigues, the sly bargains of the weekend party, the schoolboy honor of grown men, the universal weak dishonesty in thinking. He thought simply of a simplified and ideal government that governed. He thought vaguely of something behind and beyond them, England, the ruling genius of the land, something with a dignified assurance and a stable will. He imagined this shadowy ruler miraculously provided with schemes and statistics against the supreme occasion, which had for so many years been the most conspicuous probability before the country. His mind leaping forwards to the conception of a great nation reluctantly turning its vast resources to the prosecution of a righteous defensive war, filled in the obvious corollaries of plan and calculation, he thought that somewhere, up there, there must be people who could count, and who had counted everything that we might need for such a struggle, 
and organizers who had schemed and estimated down to practicable and manageable details. Such lapses from knowledge to faith are perhaps necessary that human heroism may be possible. His conception of his own share in the great national uprising was a very modest one. He was a writer, a footnote to reality. He had no trick of command over men. His role was observation rather than organization, and he saw himself only as an insignificant individual, dropping from his individuality into his place in a great machine, taking a rifle in a trench, guarding a bridge, filling a cartridge, just with a brassard or something like that on, until the great task was done. Sunday night was full of imaginations of order, of the countryside standing up to its task, of roads cleared and resources marshaled, of the petty interests of the private life altogether set aside. And mingling with that, it was still possible for Mr. Britling, he was still young enough, to produce such dreams of personal service, of sudden emergencies swiftly and bravely met, of conspicuous daring and exceptional rewards, such dreams as hover in the brains of every imaginative recruit. The detailed story of Mr. Britling's two-day search for some easy and convenient ladder into the surface of his threatened country would be a voluminous one. It would begin with the figure of a neatly brushed patriot, with an intent expression upon his intelligent face, seated in the Londonward train, reading the war news, the first comforting war news for many days, and trying not to look as though his life was torn up by the roots and all his being aflame with devotion. And it would conclude after forty-eight hours of fuss, inquiry, talk, waiting, telephoning, with the same gentleman, a little fagged, and with a kind of weary apathy in his eyes, returning by the shortcut from the station across Clavering's Park to resume his connection with his abandoned roots. The essential process of the interval had been the correction of Mr. Britling's temporary delusion that the government of the British Empire is either intelligent, instructed, or wise. The great business-as-usual phase was already passing away, and London was in the full tide of recruiting enthusiasm. That tide was breaking against the most miserable arrangements for enlistment it is possible to imagine. Overtaxed and not very competent officers, whose one idea of being very efficient was to refuse civilian help and be very, very slow and circumspect and very dignified and overbearing, sat in dirty little rooms and snarled at this unheard-of England that pressed at door and window for enrollment. Outside every recruiting office, crowds of men and youths waited, leaning against walls, sitting upon the pavements, waiting for long hours, waiting to the end of the day and returning next morning, without shelter, without food, many sick with hunger, men who had hurried up from the country, men who had thrown up jobs of every kind, clerks, shopmen, anxious only to serve England and teach those damned Germans a lesson. Between them and this object they had discovered a perplexing barrier, an inattention. 
as Mr. Britling made his way to St. Martin's Church and across Trafalgar Square, and marked the weary accumulation of this magnificently patriotic stuff, he had his first inkling of the imaginative insufficiency of the war office that had been so suddenly called upon to organize victory. He was to be more fully informed when he reached his club. His impression of the streets through which he passed was an impression of great unrest. There were noticeably fewer omnibuses and less road traffic generally, but there was a quite unusual number of drifting pedestrians. The current on the pavements was irritatingly sluggish. There were more people standing about and fewer going upon their business. This was particularly the case with the women he saw. Many of them seemed to have drifted in from the suburbs and outskirts of London in a state of vague expectation, unable to stay in their homes. Everywhere there were the flags of the Allies. In shop windows, over doors, on the bonnets of automobiles, on people's breasts. And there was a great quantity of recruiting posters on the hoardings and in windows. "'Your king and country need you,' was the chief text and they still called for a hundred thousand men, although the demand of Lord Kitchener had risen to half a million. There were also placards calling for men on nearly all the taxicabs. The big windows of the offices of the Nodeutscher Lloyd in Cockspur Street were boarded up and plastered thickly with recruiting appeals. At his club, Mr. Britling found much talk and belligerent stir. In the hall, Wilkins, the author, was displaying a dummy rifle of bent iron rod to several interested members. It was to be used for drilling until rifles could be got, and it could be made for eighteen pence. This was the first intimation Mr. Britling got that the want of foresight of the war office only began with its unpreparedness for recruits. Men were talking very freely in the club, one of the temporary effects of the war in its earlier stages was to produce a partial thaw in the constitutional British shyness, and men who had glowered at Mr. Britling over their lunches, and had been glowered at by Mr. Britling in silence for years, now started conversations with him. "'What is a man of my sort to do?' asked a clean-shaven barrister. "'Exactly what I have been asking.' said Mr. Britling. They are fixing the upward age for recruits at thirty. It's absurdly low. A man well over forty like myself is quite fit to line a trench or guard a bridge. I'm not so bad a shot. We've been discussing home defense volunteers, said the barrister. Anyhow, we ought to be drilling. But the war office sets its face as sternly against our doing anything of the sort as though we were going to join the Germans. It's absurd. Even if we older men aren't fit to go abroad, we could at least release troops who could. "'If you had the rifles,' said a sharp-featured man in grey to the right of Mr. Britling. "'I suppose they are to be got,' said Mr. Britling. The sharp-featured man indicated by appropriate facial action and head-shaking that this was by no means the case. "'Every dead man, many wounded, most prisoners,' he said, mean each one a rifle lost. We have lost five and twenty thousand rifles alone since the war began. 
quite apart from arming new troops, we have to replace those rifles with the drafts we send out. Do you know what is the maximum weekly output of rifles at the present time in this country? Mr. Ritling did not know. Nine thousand. Mr. Britling suddenly understood the significance of Wilkins and his dummy gun. The sharp-featured man added with an air of concluding the matter. It's the barrels are the trouble. Complicated machinery. We haven't got it and we can't make it in a hurry. And there you are. The sharp-featured man had a way of speaking almost as if he was throwing bombs. He threw one now. Zinc, he said. We're not short of zinc, said the lawyer. The sharp-featured man nodded and then became explicit. Zinc was necessary for cartridges. It had to be refined zinc and very pure or the shooting went wrong. Well, we had let the refining business drift away from England to Belgium and Germany. There were just one or two British firms still left. Unless we bucked up tremendously, we should get caught short of cartridges. At any rate, of cartridges so made as to ensure good shooting. And there you are, said the sharp-featured man. But the sharp-featured man did not at that time represent any considerable section of public thought. I suppose, after all, we can get rifles from America, said the lawyer, and as for zinc, if the shortage is known, the shortage will be provided for. The prevailing topic in the smoking-room upstairs was the inability of the war office to deal with the flood of recruits that was pouring in, and its hostility to any such volunteering as Mr. Britling had in mind. Quite a number of members wanted to volunteer. There was much talk of their fitness. "'I'm fifty-four, said one, and I could do my twenty-five miles in marching kit far better than half those boys of nineteen. Another was thirty-eight. I must hold the business together, he said, but why, anyhow, shouldn't I learn to shoot and use a bayonet? The personal pique of the rejected lent force to their criticisms of the recruiting and general organization. The war office has one incurable system, said a big mine-owner. During peacetime it runs all its home administration, with men who will certainly be wanted at the front directly there is a war. Directly war comes, therefore, there is a shift all round, and a new untried man, usually a dugout in an advanced state of decay, is stuck into the job. Chaos follows automatically. The war office always has done this, and so far as one can see, it always will. It seems incapable of realizing that another man will be wanted until the first is taken away. Its imagination doesn't even run to that. Mr. Britling found a kindred spirit in Wilkins. Wilkins was expounding his tremendous scheme for universal volunteering. Everybody was to be accepted. Everybody was to be assigned and registered and badged. A brassard, said Mr. Britling. It doesn't matter whether we really produce a fighting force or not, said Wilkins. Everybody now is enthusiastic and serious. Everybody is willing to put on some kind of uniform and submit to some sort of orders. And the thing to do is to catch them in the willing stage. 
Now is the time to get the country lined up and organized, ready to meet the internal stresses that are bound to come later. But there's no disposition whatever to welcome this universal offering. It's just as though this war was a treat to which only the very select friends of the war office were to be admitted. And I don't admit that the national volunteers would be ineffective, even from a military point of view. There are plenty of fit men of our age, and men of proper age who are better employed at home, armament workers, for example, and there are all the boys under the age. They may not be under the age before things are over. He was even prepared to plan uniforms. A brassard, repeated Mr. Britling, and perhaps colored strips on the reverse of a coat. Colors for the counties, said Wilkins, and if there isn't colored cloth to be got, there's red flannel. Anything is better than leaving the mass of people to mob about. A momentary vision danced before Mr. Britling's eyes of red flannel petticoats being torn up in a rapid improvisation of soldiers to resist a sudden invasion. Passing washerwomen suddenly requisitioned. But one must not let oneself be laughed out of good intentions because of ridiculous accessories. The idea, at any rate, was the sound one. The vision of what ought to be done shone brightly while Mr. Britling and Mr. Wilkins maintained it, but presently, under discouraging reminders that there were no rifles, no instructors, and, above all, the open hostility of the established authorities, it faded again. Afterwards, in other conversations, Mr. Britling reverted to more modest ambitions. "'Is there no clerical work, no minor administrative work, a man might be used for?' he asked. "'Any old dugout!' said the man with the thin face. Any old doddering Colonel Newcomb is preferred to you in that matter. Mr. Britling emerged from his club about half-past three, with his mind rather disheveled, and with his private determination to do something promptly for his country's needs, blended by a perplexing how. His search for doors and ways, where no doors and ways existed, went on with a gathering sense of futility. He had a ridiculous sense of pique at being left out, like a child shut out from a room in which a vitally interesting game is being played. After all, it is our war, he said. He caught the phrase as it dropped from his lips, with a feeling that it said more than he intended. He turned it over and examined it, and the more he did so, the more he was convinced of its truth and soundness. Two. By night there was a new strangeness about London. The authorities were trying to suppress the more brilliant illumination of the chief thoroughfares on account of the possibility of an air raid. Shopkeepers were being compelled to pull down their blinds, and many of the big standard lights were unlit. Mr. Britling thought these precautions were very fussy and unnecessary, and likely to lead to accidents amidst the traffic but it gave a Rembrandt-esque quality to the London scene, turned it into mysterious arrangements of brown shadows and cones and bars of light. At first many people were recalcitrant, and here and there a restaurant or a draper's window still blazed out and broke the gloom. 
There were also a number of insubordinate automobiles with big headlights. But the police were being unusually firm. "'It will all glitter again in a little time,' he told himself. He heard an old lady who was projecting from an offending automobile at Piccadilly Circus in hot dispute with the police officer. "'Zeppelins, indeed!' she said. "'What nonsense! As if they would dare to come here! Who would let them, I should like to know!' Probably a friend of Lady Frensham's, he thought. Still, the idea of Zeppelins over London did seem rather ridiculous to Mr. Britling. He would not have liked to have been caught talking of it himself. There never had been Zeppelins over London. They were gas-bags. 3. On Wednesday morning, Mr. Britling returned to the Dower House, and he was still a civilian unassigned. In the hall he found a tall figure in khaki standing and reading the times that usually lay upon the hall table. The figure turned at Mr. Britling's entry, and revealed the aquiline features of Mr. Lawrence Carmine. It was as if his friend had stolen a march on him. But Mr. Carmine's face showed nothing of the excitement and patriotic satisfaction that would have seemed natural to Mr. Britling. He was white and jaded, as if he had not slept for many nights. You see, he explained almost apologetically of the three stars upon his sleeve, I used to be a captain of volunteers. He had been put in charge of a volunteer force, which had been re-embodied and entrusted with the care of the bridges, gasworks, factories, and railway tunnels, and with a number of other minor but necessary duties round about Easinghampton. I've just got to shut up my house, said Captain Carmine, and go into lodgings. I confess I hate it, but anyhow it can't last six months. But it's beastly. Ugh! He seemed disposed to expand that ugh, and then thought better of it. And presently Mr. Britling took control of the conversation. His two days in London had filled him with matter, and he was glad to have something more than Hugh and Teddy and Mrs. Britling to talk it upon. What was happening now in Great Britain, he declared, was adjustment. It was an attempt on the part of a great unorganized nation, an attempt, instinctive at present rather than intelligent, to readjust its government, and particularly its military organization, to the new scale of warfare that Germany had imposed upon the world. For two strenuous decades the British Navy had been growing enormously under the pressure of German naval preparations, but the British military establishment had experienced no corresponding expansion. It was true there had been a futile, rather foolishly conducted agitation for universal military service, but there had been no accumulation of material, no preparation of armament-making machinery, no planning and no foundations for any sort of organization that would have facilitated the rapid expansion of the fighting forces of a country in a time of crisis. Such an idea was absolutely antagonistic to the mental habits of the British military caste. The German method of incorporating all the strength and resources of the country into one national fighting machine was quite strange to the British military mind. Still, 
even after a month of war. War had become the comprehensive business of the German nation. To the British it was an incidental adventure. In Germany the nation was militarized. In England the army was specialized. The nation, for nearly every practical purpose, got along without it. Just as political life had also become specialized. Now suddenly we wanted a government to speak for everyone, and an army of the whole people. How were we to find it? Mr. Britling dwelt upon this idea of the specialized character of the British army and navy and government. It seemed to him to be the clue to everything that was jarring in the London spectacle. The army had been a thing aloof, for a special end. It had developed all the characteristics of a caste. It had very high standards along the lines of its specialization, but it was inadaptable and conservative. Its exclusiveness was not so much a deliberate culture as a consequence of its detached function. It touched the ordinary social body chiefly through three other specialized bodies, the court, the church, and the stage. Apart from that, it saw the great unofficial civilian world as something vague, something unsympathetic, something possibly antagonistic, which it comforted itself by snubbing when it dared, and tricking when it could, something that projected members of parliament towards it, and was stingy about money. Directly one grasped how apart the army lived from the ordinary life of the community, from industrialism or from economic necessities, directly one understood that the great mass of Englishmen were simply outsiders to the war office mind, just as they were outsiders to the political clique. One began to realize the complete unfitness of either government or war office for the conduct of so great a national effort as was now needed. These people, up there, did not know anything of the broad mass of English life at all. They did not know how or where things were made. When they wanted things, they just went to a shop somewhere and got them. This was the necessary psychology of a small army under a clique government. Nothing else was to be expected. But now, somehow, the nation had to take hold of the government that it had neglected so long. You see, said Mr. Britling, repeating a phrase that was becoming more and more essential to his thoughts, this is our war. Of course, said Mr. Britling, these things are not going to be done without a conflict. We aren't going to take hold of our country, which we have neglected so long, without a lot of internal friction. But in England we can make these readjustments without revolution. It is our strength. At present England is confused, but it's a healthy confusion. It's a stir. We have more things to defeat than just Germany. These hosts of recruits, weary, uncared for, besieging the recruiting stations. It's symbolical. Our tremendous reserves of will and manhood. Our almost incredible insufficiency of direction. Those people up there have no idea of the will that surges up in England. They are timid little maneuvering people, afraid of property, afraid of newspapers, afraid of trade unions. They aren't leading us against the Germans, they are just being shoved against the Germans by necessity. From this Mr. Britling broke away, 
into a fresh addition to his already large collection of contrasts between England and Germany. Germany was a nation which had been swallowed up and incorporated by an army and an administration. The Prussian military system had assimilated to itself the whole German life. It was a state in a state of repletion, a state that had swallowed all its people. Britain was not a state. It was an unincorporated people. The British army, the British war office, and the British administration had assimilated nothing. They were little old partial things. The British nation lay outside them, beyond their understanding and tradition. A formless new thing, but a great thing. And now this British nation, this real nation, the outsiders, had to take up arms. Suddenly all the underlying ideas of the outer, greater English life beyond politics, beyond the services, were challenged, its tolerant good humor, its freedom, and its irresponsibility. It was not simply English life that was threatened. It was all the latitudes of democracy. It was every liberal idea and every liberty. It was civilization in danger. The uncharted liberal system had been taken by the throat it had to make good or perish. I went up to London expecting to be told what to do. There is no one to tell anyone what to do, much less is there anyone to compel us what to do. There's a war office like a college during a riot, with its doors and windows barred. There's a government like a cockleboat in an Atlantic gale. One feels the thing ought to have come upon us like the sound of a trumpet. Instead, until now, it has been like a great noise that we just listened to in the next house. And now slowly the nation awakes. London is just like a dazed sleeper, waking up out of a deep sleep to fire and danger, tumult and cries for help, near at hand. The streets give you exactly that effect. People are looking about and listening. One feels that at any moment, in a pause, in a silence, there may come, from far away, over the houses, faint and little, the boom of guns or the small outcries of little French or Belgian villages in agony. Such was the gist of Mr. Britling's discourse. He did most of the table-talk and all that mattered. Teddy was an ascending voice. Hugh was silent and apparently a little inattentive. Mrs. Britling was thinking of the courses and the servants and the boys, and giving her husband only half an ear. Captain Carmine said little, and seemed to be troubled by some disagreeable preoccupation. Now and then he would endorse or supplement the things Mr. Britling was saying. Thrice he remarked, "'People still do not begin to understand.'" End of Book Two Chapter 2, Sections 1 to 3.